here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today Cece may or may not be joining us. She's having some difficulties with her internet. There's always a lot that happens behind the scenes that you guys don't know and that we manage to fix before it comes to showtime. But sometimes we need to be like Ross and Pivot. Right, Carly, can you begin with our disclaimer and then we'll dive into today's first query. 
Yeah, so this, if you guys are listening, this is the night of the big kind of snowstorm that rolled through the East Coast. So that's kind of what we're dealing with this morning. All right, so a reminder, this is an unscripted program and our conversations have been edited and condensed and is not a full picture of our feedback or conversations directly with each author. As always, refer to our written notes for the fulsome picture. And just a reminder for all the great ways that you guys can support us, which a lot of you guys already do and we're just so thankful, which is rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, telling all of your writing friends about us. We love to help as many writers as possible every week. And you can follow us on Substack, get our stacked newsletter on a weekly basis, bonus videos, articles, essays, advice, and more. Thank you, Carly. And for our new listeners, go to our website, The Shit About Writing. There's a tab that says Books with Hooks, and that's where you will submit. Now, my advice to you is actually listen to a few episodes before you submit, because we'll have people submit query letters that go, I am a huge fan of the podcast, and then they don't listen to any of advice in the query letter which makes us either go, you're not a fan or you're not listening to our advice. You don't have to say you're a fan of the podcast, just kind of implement our advice so that we don't have to keep giving the same advice over and over again. Okay, Carly, will you kick us off? All right, here we go. And just off the top, this is an episode where both of our pitches kind of cover some subject matter that's not super safe for young ears. So if you want to grab your headphones or, you know, hit pause, this would be a great time to do it. Just letting you know we're covering some adult subject matter today. All right. Dear Cece, Carly, and Bianca, thank you for your podcast where you always provide insightful critiques and endless encouragement to writers. I have certainly learned a lot. Glory of the Leopard is an 87,000 word work of women's fiction slash psychological suspense that recently won the Claymore Award Best Mainstream slash Commercial Fiction at the 2023 Killer Nashville Conference. Imagine the female-driven pursuit, narrative, and vengeance as justice theme of Lisa Gardner's Find Her combined with the African-American viewpoint of Rachel Housel Hall's Land of Shadows. When Nigerian-born detective Blessing Okeke investigates the execution-style slang of a wealthy businessman in a Houston suburb, she soon zeroes in on an unlikely killer, the man's niece, a kindergarten teacher with no apparent motive. But Nikki Fowler is hiding a dark secret. Her uncle raped her back in high school, believing that executing her abuser will free her from a traumatic past. Nikki has taken her final revenge at the tip of a blade. She soon discovers that the psychological aftermath carries too heavy a burden, causing her to spiral into chaos, losing her job at school while fearing an arrest for the murder. As Blessing works to expose the truth and Nikki tries to cover her tracks, a new evil emerges, a wider network of sexual predators linked to the dead man. Both Blessing and Nikki separately learn of the connection and discover that Central American teens have been kidnapped. The two fierce women demand justice, but they're coming at it from opposite sides of the law. Written in deep POV style, switching between the murderous teacher and the relentless detective, the book offers the reader insights into the motivations and traumas of each woman. I have involved a Nigerian slash Igbo sensitivity reader to make sure my characterization slash language is accurate. I'd like to highlight a few more of my writing achievements. Sold more than 60,000 copies of my first novel, Broken Laces, which stayed in the Amazon Kindle top 1,000, paid for more than nine straight months. Won seven writing contests across the country, including the 2023 Claymore Award, mainstream slash commercial for this book. Named a finalist for the 2023 Pacific Northwest Writers Association Manuscript Contest. Per your guidelines, I have attached the first five pages. May I send you the full manuscript? Sincerely, Rodney Walther. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Wow. Impressive author bio over there. Okay. How many words was that and what was your take on it? All right. This one clocks in at 379 words. 
Okay, so I read a trigger warning kind of off the top for our listeners. There isn't one here. I mean, you know, we, we've talked about content warnings and trigger warnings kind of over the years on this show and lots of discourse on the internet about it. I always feel like for sexual violence, probably better to, to add one in. Again, I leave that with you. You obviously didn't include one here, which makes me think that you probably don't think that you need it. But, you know, talking about rape is something that can be triggering and is obviously, you know, sexual violence is violence. So anyway, something to, something to think about. I leave that with you and, and just kind of letting you know my feelings on that. Okay, so now... The women's fiction slash psychological suspense. These are two different categories. Women's fiction, very different than psychological suspense. It has to be one or the other. To me, this is more on the thriller suspense side than it would be on the women's fiction side. Just because you have female characters doesn't mean it's women's fiction. I would probably just be calling it psychological suspense and then obviously let the female characters kind of shine through here. I do think you need to specify whether this is a published or unpublished award. I've been to the Killer Nashville, so I know that they have different categories for published authors and unpublished authors, and I, I know that. Not all agents know that because they haven't been to Killer Nashville. So when somebody says they won an award, some agents will think, well, why are they querying me with this book if it's published and it's won an award? So that can be a little bit concerning. So I would probably be specifying that because obviously it's great to win awards, but you know, agents don't know every award and every conference and across the country okay so in terms of the plot here is really surprising which is great right it's like we know we think we kind of understand what's going on with the slang of the wealthy businessmen and then all of a sudden it's like oh it was a kindergarten teacher with no apparent motive so like i just i love that you kind of grabbed us right off the beginning obviously you have to back it up with plausibility because if it's like well if there's no motive then the reader's like well what am i reading this book so and you get into that in the next paragraph i just want you to know that it was pretty unclear to me from the paragraph of like one nigerian born detective and then but nikki fowler is hiding a dark secret it's not clear that nikki is the niece and that the uncle is the businessman. You do not have any connection from a reader's point of view that these two things are the same. So I think you probably have to spell it out. It is obvious, but the fact that I'm like, I don't know is again, should be a little concerning to you that I can't connect the dots on that. So I'm just letting you know that. I would probably cut the line, she soon discovers the psychological aftermath carries too heavy a burden. It feels a little bit like premise and backstory because I think what we really need to get at is the fact that these two women are kind of like tracking down this network of bad men. So that's kind of what I would focus on as opposed to like the psychological aftermath because again, we need like momentum, plot, and suspense novels where like we're every five pages we're chugging towards big events. I'm not sure what the words deep POV style means. I think you just kind of mean like rich characterization. So I'm just letting you know that's like not an industry term and maybe you know that and that's fine. But I was kind of like, hmm, I don't know what deep POV style means. So I think that's just rich characterization. Okay, now I'm going to kind of get at what is probably just the elephant in the room here, which is from, again, what I'm reading. I don't think you have... Again, I'm just going with what's in front of me. I don't think that you have any connection to the Nigerian community based on what I am reading here. So this is tough for me because I don't think I can sell a book from somebody who has no connection to the Nigerian community writing a main character female black woman. It's going to be really hard for me. I'm not saying you didn't do the work, but I am saying that I will be skeptical about it. And I'm, I love that you say that you obviously have done the work to engage with a sensitivity reader and all of this stuff, but coming from a certain background and having all of that like deep breath of cultural knowledge and everything like that, like a sensitivity reader isn't a replacement for that. And so it's tough, right? So I'm just letting you know as an agent, 
in this current climate, I do think that we would be skeptical of all of those things. Again, that's just one person's opinion. That's kind of how I feel at this moment. Okay, now the writing achievements. So it's always really interesting to me when somebody is celebrating their self-published success because I'm like, awesome, super happy for you, 60,000 copies, hope you made bank, awesome, 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 right? But then I'm like, okay, why, why do you want an agent? Why do you want to go traditional with this book? That's always a question for me. And I think it's always tricky to like have to answer in the query letter. But I think when somebody has had a lot of self-published success, I do recommend that they somehow explain subtly, like I'm looking for a literary agent for this book because blank, blank, blank. You know what I mean? Like we just, I just need to understand what happened in that experience that potentially is leading you to want to have a different outcome with your next book. So again, not to put a lot of pressure on the query letters. I don't think query letters have to do everything. I mean, as we all know, the, I always say the query letters job is to hook an agent and that's it. But if I have a lot of questions as an agent, that's always tricky, right? So you might just kind of want to figure out a way to suggest like, Yes, I'm, I'm happy to celebrate all these awesome wins for my self-published book, but my goal for this book is to be traditionally published because maybe like blank, blank, blank. Just anyway, try to slip that in there. Yeah, that's my analysis there. Thank you, Carly. And here is Cece with perfect timing, just in time. Welcome, Cece. Can you let us know what you thought of that query? Yes, I made it. The technological gods allowed me to be here. I'm happy to join. So I thought that this query letter had a really interesting, inciting incident right? Like murder is always like, oh my gosh, murder, what happened? But I don't really see the plot coming together after that in a way that really kept me invested. When I got to the network of sexual predators, I don't know, I worry that it just sounds like like too many sensationalistic events happening as opposed to focusing on the character journeys. It could just be a query letter thing, right? Like, but it just felt like, you know, those movie trailers where you have like a car crash and then you also have an airplane rescue. And then you also have like, it just felt like a lot of big things where I think I would have preferred to stay in their own journey, but it might just be a matter of my taste. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Carly, will you tell us what was in those opening pages? All right, so we start with chapter one, but it says bracket, sneaky prologue. So Rodney knows this is a sneaky prologue. So we start with our main character, Blessing. She is in the car with her dad. She's saying it's her final drive together in Nigeria. We don't know where they're going necessarily, but they're kind of on a long drive. We don't know how old she is, you know, so that's kind of a piece, but we know that she's with her dad and her dad is doing the driving. She says like her bladder finally decides to lodge a protest, so she has to go to the bathroom and they're kind of finding somewhere for her to go to the bathroom. He's like, there's a village up ahead, kind of telling her to wait. And they finally get somewhere where she can go. And ultimately, they really need to have a conversation because there's a big event happening, which is that they are going to be moving to Americas, which we find out. And so we know that they've been having some fights. There's a dad, a mom, and, and our daughter character. So when she is going to the bathroom, she's kind of coming back to the car and outside with her dad, there's a big snake, which is a deadly snake. And so the daughter character is feeling very dramatic and she's like trying to apologize to her dad because she feels like this could be like a life ending moment. And so it's all, you know, very, very intense and very stressful about this snake. And that's kind of where we end. We, we understand that they are, they're leaving for America and they're moving to Houston. Great, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on the opening pages? All right. So right off the top, and as I said, kind of in my analysis, I have my echoes up a little bit about this because I'm like, okay, can this person who I don't think is from a Nigerian background, again, I could stand to be corrected, but could this person pull off 
writing a scene with Nigerian characters in Nigeria. I don't know if this person has been to Nigeria. Again, they could have. It's not in the query letter. Therefore, I don't know. I want to be proven wrong, right? Because I'm obviously always optimistic about everything. So right away, I'm kind of like, oh, they say the final drive together in Nigeria. And I was kind of like, why didn't we talk about a specific town? Because I feel like when you're from somewhere, you say the town. But then I was like, oh, it's because it's their final drive in Nigeria because they're moving to America. So then I was like, okay. You know, I can suspend disbelief there. So that makes sense to me. And I kind of got at this when I was doing my summary, but I have no idea how old this character is. When somebody says, my bladder finally decides to lodge a protest, and this is in third person, but you know, when, when somebody's talking about their bladder, you're like, well, if you're a child, it's like, this might be very stressful and you might not have a lot of control over your bladder or when you're an adult. She's nine. It's tucked in there, like in, as a Perfect. detail. Yeah. Thank you. Perfect. Yeah, I think we get to that later. But yeah, right away at the beginning, I was like, oh, how old is she? But yeah, we, we figure out later on that she's nine. So I'm like, okay, this person, we don't know how old they are. They potentially have to go to the bathroom. I'm like, that's a very different situation for a child who needs to urgently go to the bathroom and an adult that urgently needs to go to the bathroom. But depending on your relationship with the person in the car, you might be nervous about being like, hey, I got to pee. So anyway, I would like to know that detail about being nine earlier because I do think that changes your read of things and then on the second page it was like okay in her nine years of life so eventually we do get there I really liked the snake bit because I felt like it was super unexpected, especially at a moment when you're like vulnerable and you're like, I have to pee, you know, and then it's like, okay, there's a snake in danger. And so we get the sense of these like heightened emotional experiences. I also really love that she tries to make amends with her dad when they're in danger. You know, it says her father's eyes grew wide. So we know that her dad is stressed about the situation. When as a child, if your dad is like, sees a threat, like that's very upsetting as a, as a child, right? Because you're just like, oh man, the person that's supposed to protect me and like they're stressed, you know, that's a super heightened emotion. So I really felt that. It says her father's eyes grew wide and his throat bobbed as if he'd swallowed a live frog slowly. I took a step backwards, then another. What are you doing? She pleaded. You're not supposed to move. I have to draw him away from you. But she didn't want either one of them to be in danger. I really am very sorry about yesterday. I said terrible things. And he placed a hand on his heart. And they have this like wonderful moment of like apologizing to each other about like the drama that's going on in their life while they're in this heightened kind of animal situation. So I really liked that. But as I said, I definitely had my had my guard up on this one for sure. Cece, what did you think? Okay, first I think I want to address my confusion because I thought you had missed her age, Carly, because I missed her age. I had to read this twice to figure out her age, even though you are so right. We do get it in the second page. But we get it in the second page in the following way. The paragraph starts with, In her nine years of life, Blessing had rarely traveled outside her hometown of Asaba. Nestled on the shore of the majestic river Niger, across from the water from the larger city of Onishta, this town had always been enough for her. And I think, I could be wrong, the reason why I missed it on my first read and had to go back to figure out, because I was like, wait, I think this is a child. How old is she? I think that the reason why I missed it is because it reads like nonfiction in that paragraph. I think you did a little bit of research in Nigeria and you kind of slipped that nonfiction sentence structure in there. And it just felt like my fiction brain just didn't register it, right? Because I'm interested in being in a novel. I'm interested in being absorbed by a story. So I wonder if that's where the confusion stemmed from, including my own confusion and thinking that Carly hadn't caught her age because again, I did not catch it initially too. And I very much agree that the first page needs like a timestamp and or an earlier reference of her age, because I also kept being like, is this not contemporary? Is she not looking at her phone? 
I feel like nowadays our phone's such a big part of our lives, especially when someone reads as young. And I think we kind of needed a timestamp to be sure. I think that's important. I'll discuss my thoughts on the pages, but then I also have a big picture note. My thoughts on the pages is that I did not believe that I was in the mind of a nine-year-old girl, let alone one that was going to move to another country, but any nine-year-old girl. It's things like she kept having these thoughts, I don't want to be away from home. Will I ever see this land again? Like to me, this is not how a nine-year-old thinks. People think in specificity, like people think with specificity. The whole, will I ever come back to this land she called home reference, it felt too big picture, too serene, too melancholic. A child's mind is anxious. A child's mind would be holding on to these specific things. It would be one thing for her to see her dog, who she isn't allowed to take, for example, and to wonder if she'll ever see her dog again. But then again, it wouldn't be this big picture, serene thought. It would be more anxious because that's how children are. Even children who, I mean, I don't even know a single child doesn't have anxiety. It's it's the mark of a child because you're always futurizing, right? She would be thinking of her friends. She would be thinking specifically of her bedroom. You know, what if she's in like her bedroom in America as much? Things like that. I also didn't believe that she would only be asking her father now where they're going in America. Like this isn't the first time he's told her about moving. So we don't get the dialogue where he shares the story that they are moving. So she would have asked that already. And if she couldn't ask me because it happened in the middle of a fight and she felt too embarrassed to ask or something, then her interiority would reflect she had to ask the question now. She couldn't wait any longer. Something like that. Something that wouldn't make it sound like it just occurred to her to ask where they're going. And when her dad talks about America, I also didn't believe it. I'll give you a few examples. She says, Zinni told me New York has buildings the size of mountains. And then he says, Houston is very much like a Saba, flat and wet but it's also a place of great opportunity. Wouldn't she think, help? does he know that? Has he been there before? Has he traveled to Houston? Is it because, I don't know, someone in his family has traveled to Houston before? Is he usually right about information? So if so, that would be a comfort to her. Probably she would be thinking, as disturbing as it is to move, her dad is never wrong. So at least she'll, she will believe that this place, Houston, is just like her hometown, right? So again, I just really wanted more on that father-daughter dynamic. And that's why I didn't read as realistic to me. Another comment that I, again, did not believe this was coming from the mouth of a Nigerian man, I just didn't, is when he says, I want what's best for you. So he's correcting her English and saying that she needs to speak properly when they arrive in America. He says, I want what's best for you. When we depart Nigeria, we will take our greatest ideals and dreams, store them in our hearts and leave everything else behind. Maybe this is intentional. Maybe this character is supposed to feel this way. And if so, keep it. But I'm struggling with how he views his own culture. When I think of Nigeria, I think of a land of overachievers. And U.S. Nigerians are by far the most educated minority immigrant group. And so it's a land of education, of like overachieving. And so I don't know. I think that there would be more pride in his voice about his own culture. You know, like I've seen people say we are moving to X country millions of times in my life. I grew up in a very international environment. Usually you say good things about your country and you say things like, oh, in that country, people are, and then insert something that's not as great. Like they're not as educated or they're not as, you know, and sure, both things happen. You can say good things about that country too. Maybe he's trying to convince his daughter, but she would pick up on that. She would be like, my dad doesn't talk like that about our country, you know? So I I just, again, I just didn't believe it. I had these moments of, ah, I'm not buying it. So maybe it's just me. Thank you, Cece. All right, let's go to our second query. Will you read that for us, Cece? Dear Cece, I have submitted my work for your critique because of your interest in morally ambiguous protagonists, liars, and unlikable peeps. 
I also appreciate your willingness to support underrepresented writers even when we are not writing about our marginalized experiences. It started with The Sunsets, complete at 91,000 words, will appeal to readers who enjoyed My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Atessa Mushveg or Elif Batman's The Idiot, with a dose of HBO's Sex Lives of College Girls. Memory is the wildest thing that we all pretend to understand. With a cult leader for a father and a televangelist for a mentor, junior soccer player Dee Montgomery prefers to forget the past. Returning to college against her mother's wishes after a failed suicide attempt, Dee is determined to prove that she can live without regrets. This leads her to binge drink while cavorting with older men. After Dee accidentally hooks up with Grant, a lacrosse player who is also part of her freshman Bible study, she decides to give him a chance. But Dee's checkered past is called into question after Grant's team becomes the target of a Title IX investigation. Since Collins is notorious for its mishandling of such cases in the past, both Dee and Grant's athletic careers hang in the balance. This character-driven novel is told from Dee's first-person POV, an unreliable narrator, both because of her drinking and desire to rewrite the past, Dee's nostalgic recollection allows her to grapple with questions ranging from theological to mundane. What is the purpose of suffering? Am I destined to become my father? Why don't more people realize that Ursula is a body-positive businesswoman and Ariel is just a pretty face with terrible negotiation skills? The character of Dee is loosely based on my own experience of navigating Yale as a sheltered black girl from the Midwest. The plot was conceived in reaction to court cases like Khan versus Yale, in which Khan sues his sexual assault victim for defamation of character and the university for $100 million in damages. I hold a BA in Religious Studies and MA in Sociology and Education. These days, I work part-time for the Yale Admissions Office while living in Houston, Texas with my husband and two daughters. As a washed-up college athlete, I work tirelessly to win my yoga classes. Warning, this manuscript deals with suicide, religious trauma, and sexual assault. Name redacted. Thank you, Cece. Okay, how many words have we got there and what was your take on it? So this one came in at 402 words. I want to start by saying the big picture note, which is the job of a query letter is to get me curious. And this query letter did its job. I was very curious. I read this and I was like, oh yes, give me these pages. I would be, again, if this had landed in my inbox, I would be scrolling down eagerly and reading those first pages with lots and lots of curiosity, which is exactly what you want. However, this is an educational podcast, so I am going to give you notes, but please know it's already working. The line memory is the wildest thing that we all pretend to understand. What a great line. What a beautiful line. Please keep this line in your pages. It just does not fit the plot, right? Like we need to keep it tight, keep it snappy, keep it to the point. So I don't think you need it. When we have the, the inciting incident, Dee's checkered past is called into question after Grant's team becomes the target of the investigation. Like, what does that mean? Is there any way to make it more specific? It felt a little too big picture right now. Like her checkered past is called into question after the team is the target of an investigation. Like the entire team is under investigation. What exactly are they being accused of? How is it tied to Dee's past? I guess I just wanted more specifics just because I couldn't see the plot in my head. I was interested and I'm curious about the character and her journey, but I really couldn't understand the plot too well. And I don't think you need the paragraph that starts with this character-driven novel is told from Dee's first-person POV. Like that entire paragraph, I don't think you need it. 
I love it. I feel like most agents will want, again, short and to the point. And if you can make this a more succinct query letter, you will be doing yourself a favor. So that's something to think about. But again, you did the job, right? Like you delivered because I'm curious. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Carly, over to you. All right. So I think that first paragraph is just awesome. So really, really well done there. Now moving on to the body paragraph. I felt like the line about returning to college against her mother's wishes after the failed suicide attempt, it felt a little bit like, I wasn't sure if it was like a premise or like synopsis. Like it came off a bit factual to me because it's like, you know, determined to prove she can live without regrets. This leads to her binge drink while cavorting with older men. I don't know. It just felt like a little bit like this happened and then this happened and then this happened. So that's just how it's coming off for me. I felt like this whole query, and it's so interesting that Cece and I had different reactions to it because I felt like this whole query letter, we just like kept bumping up against the stakes. Like we'd get to the stakes and we would just like bump up against them. And I wouldn't get like, what is at stake? We're bumping up against so much interesting content here in terms of you know her own like mental health you know we'll talk about a little bit more of that in the in the opening pages and then you know accidentally hooks up with grant decides to give him a chance but i'm like well like does she want a relationship with them or she just wants like a sex buddy like i have no idea what her intentions are of these relationships and of the outcome and i think that's where the comp of sex lives of college girls kind of comes into play because i don't think girls at this age or people at this age anybody at this age knows what they want all the time right and i think stakes at this age is tricky right because you're just like not everything has to have a stake if we're talking about real human beings but in the context of the book i just felt like we kept bumping up against this with the target of the title nine investigation the mishandling of the cases their athletic careers hang in the balance i think all of that is super interesting but i'm like are they involved are the teams going to be suspended again what's at stake here we could, we're bumping up against stakes but we're like we're not getting at consequences or anything like that so again it felt a bit like coming of age to me and a bit more literary which again speaks to the fact that maybe because it's more literary it's it's just not for me and that's okay i love the unreliable narrator because of the drinking but the whole thing about like the kind of rhetorical questions what's the purpose of suffering and my destined to become my father talking about ursula and ariel i'm like where is that coming from that's like totally out of left field for me i'm trying to figure out like oh was she a swimmer and that's why we're talking about swimming and ariel like I, I that's what i'm saying it's like all of this is so interesting but i'm not personally making connections between all of this so that was some of the stuff that was a little bit challenging for me oh the last thing I wanted to say was you had the line as a washed up college athlete I worked tirelessly to win my yoga classes I have never felt more seen in my entire life because as a as a washed up athlete myself trying to win at non-winning physical activities is one of my favorite things so I felt very seen there so I think I think there's just so much here that's interesting for me it was just yeah I just kept bumping up against some of these roadblocks Awesome, Carly. Thank you. All right, Cece, will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? So we're in the living room where the protagonist is sitting across her mother who's crying and her mother's asking her to not go back to school, insisting that she could take some time off. And the protagonist is saying that she has to go back, that she has soccer and her mom reminds her that she can't play with her injury. And she makes kind of a, a hurtful comment to her mom that she doesn't understand what it's like to be a part of a team. Her mother 
had wanted her to go to a Christian college. We learned through interiority, but she got a soccer scholarship. And, you know, that college is waiting for her. Her mother calls her Delilah when she's insisting that she stays. And the protagonist reminds her, my name is Dee. Her mom accuses her of not knowing herself, of making a mistake. You don't know yourself. And the protagonist lashes out about her childhood and escalates into an actual conflict between the two women. Her mom says she'll have her committed. And the protagonist says that's not a thing anymore. That doesn't happen anymore. And her mom says, yeah, but it'll take one phone call from the college because it'll happen again. And then, you know, the protagonist grabs her purse and, and leaves. All right. Thank you, Cece. What did you think of that? Do you think the author started in the right place? What was your take? You know, I don't think that this is the right place to start because it's not a book about her relationship with her mom. From the query letter, anyway, it doesn't seem to be a book about her relationship with her mom. But let's imagine that it is, okay, the right place. I, and then I'll, I'll critique these pages and then I'll give you a suggestion of another place to start if that works. So these pages, for me, there's a missed opportunity to dive into the relationship dynamics that shape her. Example number one. She's having a conversation with her mom about staying. Her mom is saying, don't go back. That's it. Don't go back. And, you know, she's having a normal level-headed conversation with her mom in the beginning. Is this the first time they've had this conversation? Because I don't believe that it is, right? And if it's not, because her friend is waiting in the car. Her friend is waiting in the car for her to go back to school as this conversation is taking place. Then her interiority should reflect the fact that there's a reason I waited until the very last minute to tell you. It's because you were going to have this reaction, mom. You know, like her interiority should reflect that. And right now it's not. It's not clear whether it's the first time they're having the conversation. And if it is the first time, her mom needs to feel more shocked, blindsided. What do you mean you're only telling me this now? Like there's a person waiting in the car. What are you talking about? No, let's like sit down. Let's have a proper conversation, right? And if it's not the first time, then we need more frustration about how not this again. You know, we've covered this. I've already explained this to you. Why are you making me do this emotional labor again? Like it's one or the other. Her interiority just right now seems absent. And I didn't buy that. The second thing is like if her friend is waiting for her in the car, why is she sitting having like a chill conversation? Like did she text her friend and tell her friend that, you know, it's going to be a while? Is her friend okay waiting? This is what I'm talking about, the relationship dynamics. Like is this a friend who is eager to be there, a friend who is eager to help, who offered, who's so caring and kind? Or did she have to call in a favor? Is she feeling inadequate that she needed her friend to even help her? These relationship dynamics say so much about a protagonist, especially at the beginning of a novel. And I really felt that missing here. And I really wanted it because like I said, the thing about the query letter that hooked me is the character. Like this character just seems very interesting. She seems to have a very interesting background and she's in a very interesting place. And there's that whole outsider thing. And I want to read the story, but I don't think you fleshed out her dynamics just yet. It just felt underdeveloped for me, which is okay because you're still working on these pages. So what I would do is I would just develop them more before you're ready to query. I also had questions like, so if she has a soccer scholarship and she's injured, like does her scholarship still apply? Does she still get to go to school? Like does she have to pay for that semester? If, if so, is she worried about money? Another thing is that it jumped to conflict way too soon. I think we need more time with tension and build up and those tricky dynamics with interiority before we reach the conflict, especially because the conflict is about the past, right? Like the conflict is not story forward. I will say there were so many insightful moments that I kept highlighting. This part about women, other women got all the gentleness of life and her wondering if, you know, if she were a man, if she would be being praised for her stoic demeanor. But since she's a woman, it makes her callous or cold hearted. And it, it just feels like a really interesting book with a lot of potential. 
But I think like these pages need work when it comes to the relationship dynamics, which makes me think that probably all of it needs work. If you want a different place to start, I almost think that you can have all of these messy emotions in interiority with her arriving in school and then have a scene with power imbalance at her arrival. Because if the whole point is to establish that her mom didn't want her to go back and her mom doesn't know her name, you can do that very easily with like three interiority lines sprinkled in strategically. A really good book to look at, for an example, is The Spare Room by Andrea Bartz. That book starts with the protagonist arriving. She's on a train and she's arriving in a new place and she just had a fight with her partner. And we don't see the fight because we don't have to. Andy establishes the fight with lots of curiosity seeds in three lines and not three lines one after the other, just sprinkled in. So that's a good example for you to perhaps take a look at. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Carly, your take. All right. I want to start off by saying what Cece usually says, which is, you know, when you like love, love, love the writing so much, we have to focus on what we need to approve. And I just want to say, honestly, on a line level, like so many beautiful lines, like my first page is just full of like, this is good, super interesting line, great detail, great line. The writing is really, really strong. So this, in my perspective, is not a critique of the writing. Big picture things for me are just kind of spitting off of what Cece had said is dialogue, the dialogue here, right? Like what Cece's getting at is the relationship itself and how it's showing up through dialogue. But the dialogue itself, I mean, really unnatural to me. And I know it's a really intense situation and we never know how anybody's going to react in an intense situation. But I don't know if everything was just a teensy bit too perfect. And I'm almost wondering if it was just like over edited in that sense of like, you know, trying to take the stylistic editing choices that you would apply to like the more prose elements and you're applying that to the dialogue. For an example, you know, there's a line that says, you never did understand what it means to be part of a team. My mother flinched. I hadn't meant the implied subtext or perhaps I had, you're still healing. She tried a different approach. I wish that you would go see the doctor. Like everything is just like perfect sentences. And again, if you're that intense and heated, like I just don't know if like everything would come out so rehearsed like that. And again, unless they've had this argument a million times and like that's why it's the rehearsed argument. And in that sense, it's just performative for the reader because if these characters have had this argument a million times, why are we having it now for the sake of the story? And again, that's what makes me think we're not we're not starting in the right place. So I've highlighted a few elements here, which you guys can see in my notes on Substack and the author can see all of my notes about like what I really liked and then the dialogue pieces that I think kind of need to come into play. And now I just want to talk about the mental health piece, which I kind of alluded to in my earlier query letter notes. Because I think another thing I'm kind of bumping up against here is this idea, like it seems pretty fresh. You know, she's talking about the bandages on her wrists. That seems fresh. So it seems like I don't know how long ago it happened, if we're talking like days or a week, you know, it it just, it seems like that fresh to me. And so what I'm struggling with a little bit is this, what changed from the moment she wanted to take her own life to the moment that she was able to stand up to her mom and not feel shame? Because she says, you know, I began removing the wraps, covering the four inch cuts on both my wrists. So she didn't say like scars, she says cuts. I was done hiding these scars. So potentially they're turning into scars. I wasn't ashamed. I was furious that I could hurt so badly for so long and no one ever handled me delicately. I just want to like knowing what somebody could feel like at the depths of their emotional bucket, you know, like we're talking lowest of the low here, right? And something has to snap you out of it or there has to be a huge mind shift. And especially from a young adult to be able to make that shift. I'm just so curious about what that is. I don't know. And and it makes me just feel like I don't understand this character at all. If I can't understand, like, again, how you go from your lowest of your low. And then a week later, you can be standing up to your mom 
talking about how you're not ashamed of the situation. And maybe she isn't. But again, I don't understand how she got from A to B. That's the problem that I'm having with some of this characterization. But as I said, on a line level, everything is beautiful. Like everything is crafted really well. But I'm, I'm really bumping up against the dialogue and just that 180 shift in terms of mental health. Right. Thank you, Carly and Cece, as always, for your very insightful critique. Lots to unpack there and a lot for the authors to think about. Right. Let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast-track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. 
Today's guest has published writing in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Paris Review, and Tin House, among others. In 2019, she was awarded a Masthead Reporting Residency with The Atlantic, where she produced the feature-length article that would later inspire the idea for this book. Acts of Forgiveness is her first novel. It's my pleasure to welcome Maura Cheeks. Maura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful having you join us. And before we dive into a discussion of the book, could you please just give our listeners an overview of what the book is about? Sure. Acts of Forgiveness imagines the country has just passed the nation's first reparations bill for Black families. It follows four generations of the Revel family as they're working to retrace their lineage in order to be eligible for the funds and also while navigating a struggling family business. It's about reparations on the surface, but it's also about ambition, wealth, inheritance, and the power of our ancestors. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here, a lot. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. So this happens when it's the country's first female president, but you don't give us like a date of when in the future this is. That's right. Yeah, that's correct. It's so funny. Everyone has been sort of hinging on this idea that it's the first woman president. But yeah, I mean, I didn't want to pinpoint it to a year because... I didn't want people to reference it against Trump in any way. I just wanted it to be something that existed and the reader can sort of intuit when this might be. Yeah, and that was a very deliberate decision on your part. So we always say to our listeners, be intentional, be deliberate with the decisions you make. Whenever you choose the setting to be, whatever year you happen to choose, whatever city or state or country you choose, it needs to be very deliberate. And what I loved here is that Maura is not immediately aging her book because she could have said, oh, this is, you know, she could have given a year, 20, whatever, and immediately ages the book. Because when that year comes and there's no female president and this hasn't happened, people are like, oh, man, she wrote this book predicting this would happen and it didn't happen. And of course, this book is not a prediction of any of that. It's a what if this finally came to pass? What would that look like? So I love the intentionality there, Maura. Before we dive into the rest of the book, our listeners love hearing from debut authors in terms of their journey to publication, how long it took them to write the book, how long it took them to land an agent, what that querying process looked like, and after landing an agent, how long it took to actually sell the book. So could you take us back to that original article that you wrote and then kind of how it went forward from there? Yeah, I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to write a book. I started writing nonfiction pieces in about 2017 that were personal essays, most some journalism, but mostly personal essays. And then I had the idea for the Atlantic article. So I applied for the masthead residency. It took about five months to research and write that article. I think. And then, you know, in the course of writing that article and based on a couple of articles that I had published, a couple of agents reached out to me, or maybe it might have been just one agent reached out to me. And I took that as an opportunity to then query additional agents once I realized, hey, there might be some interest in representation here. So I queried additional agents based on my nonfiction writing. And I had one agent when I started writing Acts of Forgiveness. It wasn't the right fit for that agent. So I actually, even though I had an agent, once I had a finished draft of Acts of Forgiveness, I then queried a couple of other agents 
which is a little bit difficult to do when you have an agent, but I would say it's really important to find someone who can represent your book in the right way. And that's not to say that my previous agent wasn't excellent. It's just, you know, agents have very particular focus areas. And so the first agent I had was mostly focused on nonfiction and graphic novels. And so it just wasn't the right fit. And so I discreetly queried other agents saying, you know, I have current representation. I'm looking to change. Here's a draft of the manuscript. Please don't share it. And so I ended up finding my current agent through that route. And it ended up being a really great fit. She mostly represents fiction authors. And that process, you know, I would say like, I started writing the book in 2019. I had an agent at that point. I didn't pitch my current agent until I believe 2021. And so once I landed my current agent, we worked on acts of forgiveness edits for about three or four months, and then we submitted it to publishers. So it sold in November, 2021. And here it is 2024 and just about to come out. So it's, you know, it was a long process between you know, writing the Atlantic article and getting my first agent and then finally getting another agent and selling the book and having it come out. So, okay. There's a lot to unpack there. So one, most people don't understand how long a book takes to come out, but it's normally around about 18 months for you. It sounded like it was closer to three years. (laughs) Is that because of COVID or is it that your publisher wanted you to do extensive rewrites again? What was the reason for that huge delay there? You know, my editor had some personal matters as well. So there was a little bit of delay on that end. Just she was on leave. And so, you know, you may sell your book, but it really doesn't start moving forward until you start getting edits. So I didn't get edits for maybe seven months. So, yeah, I mean, a little bit of selling a book is also you're on then someone else's timeline. So it's pretty dependent on the other books your editor is working on and other things they have in the queue. And they tend to have a very specific timeline for when they want books to come out. So I'd say like, once you sell your book, you're a little bit on your publisher's timeline. Yeah. I say publishing is hurry up and wait. It's like, hurry up. You need to get this done. And then you need to wait all eternity and then hurry up. you got to get this done again. And then it's a wait in terms of how you positioned the book when you went out on submission. Maura, can you recall how much of that sort of pitch is exactly as the book looks now or if that has evolved a lot over time? And what were your comp titles for something like this? Yeah, the pitch is pretty close to the current book. One comp title was The Turner House by Angela Flournoy. I hope I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. I always mess that up. But yeah, I say the pitch is pretty close to how I originally pitched it to my agent, which is... You know, when you pitch a book, it has to be pitched in a specific genre. So I didn't write it thinking this is speculative fiction. I wrote it sort of thinking it was literary fiction, which actually isn't a genre to pitch to a publisher. So you have to define it in some ways. It was pitched as speculative fiction, but only slightly. So I'd say that was the biggest change just in terms of more specifically defining a genre. But other than that, the premise was pretty much as I pitched it to my agent, which is, you know, it centers on this one family. It imagines the country has passed reparations. We didn't include a year when we pitched it. So, yeah, it was pretty it was pretty close to how I originally imagined it. 
Yeah, that's great because a lot of the times that changes a lot, you know, especially from when you pitch it to when it gets published, you know, that kind of thing will evolve a lot. So it just shows how closely you stuck to your original vision of the novel that so much of that stayed the same. In terms of the research process for the article, how much of that served you in good stead later when you were writing the book? Or was it a case of, you know, that wasn't really anything that you had to factor in and you had to do additional research? I definitely had to do additional research. I would say I interviewed someone named Professor Darity for my Atlantic article, and I ended up going back and interviewing him a little bit more extensively for the book. And he read a draft of the book and he is an economist and has a book called From Here to Equality that he co-wrote with his wife, A. Kirsten Mullen, and it's focused on reparations. So I went back once I knew that my novel was going to be about reparations and more specifically interviewed him in terms of what the policy could look like, what would it actually entail to come to fruition. So that was definitely helpful just in terms of finding him initially for the article and then being able to go back and interview him for the book. And then I would say I ended up doing a lot more research in terms of genealogy. And I went to Mississippi and in the book, there's a character who goes to Mississippi and is going to the archives and retracing her history. And I went through that process of meeting with employees at the archives and the historical society and sort of, you know, explained to them what my character was doing. And they were very generous in in walking me through what that journey might be like and looking up specific documents. And so I was able to sort of mimic the character's journey. But I would say that part, like I had already written the draft, I think twice. And then I realized, okay, I need to go a little bit deeper. And I had actually landed my agent before I went to Mississippi. And then I told her, actually, I need to do more research. So I would say, you know, you can get your book to a place where you feel good about querying, but know that there's still some additional work to be done. I would say some agents are more open to this than others, but if you feel like there's more work to be done in your book, that's not to say that it, you know, you shouldn't do that, even if you have representation. Yeah, geez, I know authors who the book will have sort of gone into production and they just have an epiphany one night and the whole book changes completely. And this was a book that was about to go into production and they're just lucky that they have editors who are like, okay, we share your vision. You've got to do it faster, but we, we share it. Yeah, so it shouldn't be a case of, okay, I've handed it in now. I don't feel like I need to do any more work. What's awesome here though is how much you focused on plausibility. Because this is, you know, this future world and there are these speculative elements to it, you know, you could have just made up how this whole thing looked. And yet you wanted to speak to an economist and you wanted to speak to people to say, if this happened, how might it happen? As opposed to just going, okay, I'm just going to make up my own way of of how I wanted to do this. Was there a specific reason for that? Was it as a framework? Did you deviate at all from suggestions that he made in terms of, well, I'm using poetic license because this is better for the story? Can you take us through that a bit? Yeah, I think I wanted to do that due diligence because I feel a sort of responsibility for the topic. So it is such a politically fraught topic and there is some momentum, but not enough, in my opinion, towards a reparations policy. So I felt some responsibility to get certain elements correct, where if someone is reading this, 
you know, my hope is that it might change the way they think about certain aspects of reparations. And so I wanted to make sure that certain pieces were accurate just for that impact that I might hope to have on a reader. But yeah, I definitely took some poetic license in terms of, you know, the money is given, for example, in the book in, I don't, this isn't a spoiler, but in one check, you know, and that's not necessarily how an actual policy might come to be. So that's one example. But yeah, I think, you know, for fiction, it's so interesting because especially if you write about certain political topics, you're interviewed in such a way that you're expected to be an expert, even though you're a fiction writer. And so I think fiction writers are in an interesting position because you do have some responsibility to the topic and sort of how much license you take is also like to some extent it it's sort of a give and take of what you want to have the reader take away that you feel is important that you want to get right and be accurate versus some poetic license to just make the story work so it's an interesting give and take i'm a little surprised yeah to the extent that i'm being interviewed as a policy expert so i have to constantly say you know i'm not an expert this is something that i'm was interested in and passionate about, but yeah. Yeah, and I think this is why a lot of authors then go the route of, you know, fictionalizing it so much more to make it very clear that they aren't trying to state that they are policy experts on this or whatever, because it does. Then you start to feel like, oh my God, I need to know more than what I do. But really, I was creating an imaginary world. And honestly, this book is more an examination on character and, you know, how the past affects the present and, you know, a, a character sacrifice in having to give up so much for their family. You know, in terms of the reparations, that is the big picture, what's happening in the background of the story. But, you know, it's more about Willie and what's happening to her. So, yeah, I think sometimes when a book gets marketed, I think marketing and PR people are always looking for a kind of angle to get in with. And sometimes you as the author kind of get stuck mm -hmm. in that place because this is how they're positioning you because they want to get as many eyes on the book as possible. But yeah, that can sometimes be frustrating. Can we talk about writing a novel with dual timelines? You know, there are instances where you need to go back in the past and see what happened in the past. But when that happens, you cannot have that dragging the momentum of the story backward. What is happening in the past needs to be just as interesting as the present day narrative. And in fact, it needs to come in at a point where it adds to the present day narrative and helps move it along even more with more tension, etc. Was that a challenge for you in terms of a debut novelist, balancing that? Because we say to a lot of emerging authors, for your first novel, try and, you know, write it in a linear way. Start here, end here, because the minute you've got dual timelines, dual POVs, anything like that, it complicates it. So how did you find that process? Well, I would say this is one way the novel did change. I had one of those like late epiphanies. <laughs> I actually, you know, in the course of waiting for edits, had the realization I really wanted to go back into Willie's childhood. And so my whole goal with the book, I think was to make the reader empathize with the characters. And to do that, I felt I needed more of her childhood inserted. And so it was a compromise because I actually wanted to start the book with her younger and my editor sort of pushed back on that for the reasons you were stating. So we came to a compromise, but yeah, it's hard. I think as an 
writer, it's hard to let the book go. So I'm, I was always sort of thinking, how can I make it better? How can I make it better? And for me, going backwards and exploring her childhood and the revels earlier was something that was important to include. And then originally, I also, when it sold, had chapters from Lourdes's perspective as well. That ended up not making the final cut. So yeah, for clarity's sake, I think, and the more point of views you introduce, it's harder to sort of keep people hooked. So that ended up sort of getting woven in throughout other places in the book. So yeah, I I think, you know, it was a little bit of a challenge. And I would say one learning I had, you know, it's hard when you sell the book and then you're having these sort of larger structural epiphanies. Your publisher (laughs) may not be as open to those, right? Because they bought a certain book. I think doing it with your agent is different. And so, yeah, I think for my next book, I'll probably be in a in a different place structurally with the book when it sells. Now, I didn't realize all this when it when it sold, but I think in the course of waiting for edits, I was, you know, sort of editing the book in my mind. Yeah, this is the shit no one tells you about writing people. So yeah, if you're gonna have these epiphanies, have them before you sell the book to the publisher, because just as Maura says, an editor buys a book, they have a certain vision for it. And sometimes it's great, you know, that as the story evolves in your mind, they're like, okay, I went from buying a dual POV novel and now this is just a single POV or I had a single timeline and now we have dual timeline or whatever. It is so much easier to get these things sorted out beforehand so that when you're working with them on it, it's just polishing up what the best version of that is as opposed to having to make concessions and the backwards and forwards. I must say that I do agree with your editor that had you started with Willie Younger, it kind of signals more of a YA kind of book. If you start with the protagonist young, it does signal that. So I do like that we started with her as an adult and then we went back and we got more of her backstory from the perspective of an adult. But it is, it's difficult as a writer. You're like, should I start with her younger? Should I start with her older? How should I do this? Something that Maura has done really well to great effect in this book is using sort of NPR transcripts, news transcripts of speeches to get expositional information across because we have these characters who stop and of course they're watching the news because they're waiting to see if this thing's going to happen. So Maura, I think you do have a copy there in front of you. Okay, so Willie is in the car and she's listening to an interview on NPR. Host. You have been an outspoken advocate of the Forgiveness Act. Can you give us an update on where things stand and how you're feeling about the chances of it passing the Senate? Senator Walker. As you know, Rachel, this bill would be monumental if it passes. We have never issued any sort of reparations payment to African Americans in the United States. Think about that for a moment. After the murder of Rashad Jones and countless other innocent, unarmed men and women, the nation desperately needs a catalyst for healing. People are tired, and two men being sent to jail will not solve the problem. The Forgiveness Act would start to put a dent in the racial wealth gap in America. But, and this is why I've been such an outspoken advocate of this, it's not just about what it means for African Americans. It is about what it means for every American citizen to finally reckon with their country's past so we can live up to our true potential. And in terms of whether I'm optimistic about it passing, I would say I'm extremely optimistic. I mean, look, we have a record number of African Americans in Congress, the most since the founding of this country. Now, clearly, there are members who oppose the Forgiveness Act. 
who think they should not be responsible for the sins of previous generations. But what I ask them is whether they drive on roads that were built before their generation. Do they pay taxes for public services that will benefit other people? Do they want to save the planet for future generations? I'm excited for the benefits our society will reap when a country is spiritually and financially liberated. Host, there have been comparisons between the Forgiveness Act and the Civil Liberties Act. Are those accurate? Senator Walker. The Civil Liberties Act was necessary because Japanese Americans who were subjected to the racism and brutality of internment camps deserved recourse. The CLA proves that reparations can work in this country. I want to be clear that one of the differences with the Forgiveness Act is that it's not only an acknowledgement of wrongdoing. With forgiveness, we are looking to create systemic change. Okay, so I'm about to read a part with Paloma watching television with her grandmother. Paloma's favorite anchor appeared, a serious woman with braided hair and pink lipstick. The Senate Majority Leader has been vocal about pushing the Forgiveness Act through, she told viewers. Here he is discussing the act with reporters earlier today. Nathan Townsend stood in a marble hallway, two thick columns on either side of his small frame. He spoke slowly and carefully, like one of Paloma's old wind-up dolls. Eight years ago, we passed the Commission to Study and Develop Reparations proposals for African Americans to address the fundamental injustice, cruelty, brutality, and inhumanity of slavery in the United States. The results from the study were undeniable. For hundreds of years, the United States government has successfully evaded responsibility for constitutionally and statutorily sanctioning the unspeakable exploitation of African Americans, the deprivation of freedom, the exploitation of labor, the destruction of culture, religion, language, and families, and the denial of humanity. The United States government willingly engaged in these acts. Today, the African American community continues to suffer the consequences of deliberate prejudiced choices made by the government of the United States of America. The consequences of redlining, of exclusion from the GI Bill, of police brutality, of mass incarceration, of unequal education in Black communities. To heal a wound, you must first acknowledge its existence. While no amount of money can ever make up for the wrongs committed by the United States government against its own citizens, citizens who made this country possible, America now takes the first important step. A country that does not acknowledge its moral wrongs cannot move forward. With the Forgiveness Act, America accepts both moral and financial responsibility for the wrongs committed against African Americans and starts its long process of healing in order to deserve the words written in one of its founding documents. All men are created equal. We are recommending that families begin considering how they will qualify for the forgiveness funds. We will release a genealogy guide, but families are strongly encouraged to think about which ancestral line they will use to prove qualification and who will be in charge of documentation. Awesome, Maura. Okay, so for our listeners, there are so many different ways that Maura could have gone about giving the reader this information. It could have been exposition through the narrator. The narrator could have described, given a summary of what they heard on the radio, etc. Why was it important for you to include speech transcripts, NPR transcripts, as a form of the exposition, considering what different forms of writing there are, right? Writing a scene with fiction and two characters having dialogue is so very different from writing a very formal, structured speech. So can you speak a bit about why it was important to include those kinds of transcripts and the challenges of writing them? Yeah, I listened to a lot of interviews in order to get a feel for the pace of the writing and the information that's conveyed and sort of like the natural pauses that happen in interviews. You know, I was imagining what it's like when something nationally relevant is happening and how you usually learn of that information. And, you know, I was writing this book in 2019 and then obviously COVID happened and suddenly we were all tuned to the news constantly. And so that sort of reaffirmed my choice to do that because 
I think, you know, when you actually care about a policy that's passing, like you're constantly trying to consume information about it. And so I wanted to mimic that feeling. And I thought that that was something that readers could empathize with, like this idea of listening in the car, like getting like snatches of information and having that sort of like inform their knowledge about whatever's happening in the world. Yeah, it was really, really well done. So for our listeners out there who are considering doing similar things, whether it's including newspaper articles or listening to you know, hosts on the radio or seeing a speech being given. It's an excellent, excellent book to take a look at to see how Maura incorporated all those different elements. Maura, we're at the end of our time. There's was so much to unpack in this book, but, you know, we don't focus so much on book club elements as actual writing craft. And there was so much to admire here. So for our listeners, we're linking to Acts of Forgiveness on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you get the book there, you support an independent bookstore, you support the podcast and you support Maura at the same time. Maura, we wish you much success with this and hope to have you back for the next one. Thank you so much. I love this. A lot of fun. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th 
also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.